Should we be doing less agreeing and more bike shedding in this podcast? I'm not sure how this works. Should we bike shed whether or not we should bike shed? <laughs> yes, definitely. Let's do that. <laughs> what type of bike shedding would you like to get into, Tony? Does anyone here actually have a bike shed for their bike? Not in San Francisco, I don't think. Well, hey guys, uh, my name is Amanda, and I am joined today with three other developers here in San Francisco. Do you guys want to take turns introducing yourselves? Hi, I'm Tony. I'm the iOS developer here in San Francisco. And I'm Josh. I'm a Rails developer here in San Francisco. And lastly, I'm Greg, and I'm also a web developer here in SF. Got a whole motley crew here. And we're all speaking out of one mic, so this will be fun. <laughs> Sharing is caring, right? So we were talking um, as we were getting everything set up about how we all do different things here and that there should be some good material of things to cover. Um, so I always think when you get different types of engineers um, in a room together, there's like kind of broad software engineering topics that come up. Um, something that I saw on Twitter last week that I thought was interesting is this idea that software developers in their spare time either should be learning languages or the type of developer who spends all their time learning other languages and you know, editing their dot files on the weekends and versus the other type of people who maybe just do this as a job and they're passionate about their work, but they want to do other things on the weekends. And I was wondering which category you guys felt you were in and your feels on it. I think it's definitely changed a lot for me since I've started developing. I think when I was first getting into software, I spent a ton of time either doing side projects in languages that I was learning or like attempting really basic things in new languages to see if I could pick something up and find something that I liked. But I think now that I've pretty much found the style that I like and the way I like building things, I really need like a problem I really need to solve in order to go pick up a new tool because it's so easy and quick to just jump to the tool that I know to solve something. Yeah. I find that um, without a challenge, um, it's really difficult for me to learn. And I've always wondered if that comes from just years of schooling where you had homework assignments and that's how we were taught to learn. And like if there are other ways that you can, as an adult, reteach yourself how to learn something without that kind of construct or problem statement. Yeah, I think for me, it's definitely not so much a challenge, but just something I need to be or something I want to do, right? I need to be passionate or at least want to uh, do something in order for me to learn something new. So for instance, a project to learn a new language like Haskell, say for instance, you know, I need to have something I really want to do in that project. So learning Haskell, like I don't get bored of that part of it. So at least the thing I'm making in Haskell is entertaining and valuable to me and I want to do that. And so I will keep pushing through some of the hard things about getting used to or using a new language or new tools for that language, especially. Um, I'll get I'll push through those annoying pieces because I know that I'm doing something I like in the end. So I need that kind of uh, that passion there or else I won't learn new things very often. Yeah. And this isn't even like programming languages. I feel like back to your original topic, I feel like, you know, just learning in general, you know, for anything you do and whether it be programming or I don't know, carpentry or social media, like it doesn't matter. Like I, I feel like to stay up in topic with your job, like you should always be learning and hopefully you're passionate enough about what you're doing that you'll want that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's where like leaders in those industries will come from, right? People who are passionate enough about it to keep learning on the side. Yeah, I feel like there's definitely a stigma about learning on your own time and coding in your own time. And um, part of it comes from the competitiveness of the space. Um, if you want to stay ahead of the game or on the edge, you should 
learn in your spare time. But that conflicts directly with your personal life, uh, you know, your relationships that you might have, your hobbies. And so, so it's tough to balance, especially like being a new father, that's even harder to balance. I just personally cannot find time right now to do anything but work and family. That might change as kid gets older, but um, sit up by themselves. That helps. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it, it's definitely a topic of discussion and kind of a thing to try to figure out how to balance in your life. Yeah, I find that here at Thoughtbot we have Investment Fridays, and I love them. But I feel like even being excited and passionate about something, I, there are so many Fridays where it's like I'm ready and I'm I want to do something and I want to take advantage of this opportunity, but you just don't have like the problem or there's nothing in particular you want to work on. And those I think end up stressing me out more than like on the weekend. Cause it's like, no, this is the time that I don't program. I can do other things, but the time where you should be learning. And it's like, this is a day every week that I know I should be learning. And then I just feel like some weeks I don't learn something. And it's like, I've wasted this opportunity that so many people don't have. Yeah. I definitely have a sense of that too. I feel like because I have this Friday, I'll try to reserve learning for that Friday. But then come that Friday, there's so many things I want to do that I get overwhelmed and I just end up not doing anything yeah. because maybe I don't have any clear direction or I don't have any clear uh, project I want to do for those things. And and then, like you said, too, like on the weekends, I do a lot of other things so that are not program related. And so like I don't necessarily always have time to do that stuff on the side. But yeah, it's definitely that feeling of overwhelming or, or just not any clear direction can be stopping. Do any of you guys have tips on things that have like motivated you on Fridays or I just don't want everyone to think that we're, <laughs> we all just struggle. And I think it's important to share the things that are hard, but also like hot tips or things that have worked for you in the past. Um, well, not particularly to Friday, but we've been doing development book club in San Francisco and some of our other offices. And that has helped organize a group of people around learning something, whether that being a new language or, you know, brushing back up on algorithms that actually kind of gives you that objective like oh everyone else is doing this and mm -hmm. they're reading the book and I've agreed to participate so I'm gonna go out and read a book and that kind of gives you a way to do it yeah I think for me I've started actually doing more things with people and so instead of just taking a Friday to do something on myself I'll like ask Josh here to like let's do some ML some machine learning stuff mm -hmm. or you'll know, ask um, we have a quite a contingent here for unity program you know 3d and vr and so i'll ask you know i'll be like hey does anyone want to compare with me on unity or unreal just just so i have someone there with me and that'll keep me going through the tough parts and also like just it's more fun that way because then you can kind of be hanging out while you're doing that stuff so that has helped me recently yeah i'm in the android another android slack group and i just have started turning on notifications for channels of things that i'm interested in so there's a kotlin channel and if anyone comes in, there's also a Kotlin beginners channel and I'll like really listen to those questions because that's the easiest way to learn something or to get better at something and to see what other people are struggling with. It's like, oh, I know that or, oh my God, I had never thought about that. Now I can learn that with them or see what the answers are. So that's always been, I've really enjoyed that lately. Uh, a topic that's sort of been touched on already and something that's been uh, interesting to me recently and there's been a lot of buzz about it is AI and machine learning. And that is definitely not something we tend to do day to day when we do our client work. But that is something that is more and more relevant to the industry in, at large. And so I've been thinking about how can we do more uh, machine learning? How do we get into that? 
And uh, some of the you know activity has happened in our Boston office. Our uh, CTO has proposed uh, doing more big data where machine learning is more relevant, et cetera. Um, there is a uh, repository that I found recently that basically lists out all the Ruby-specific libraries, talks, blog posts on machine learning. So I've been going through that and just seeing what's available. But that is definitely something that's been on my mind and... You know, I don't know if anyone else is interested in that and, you know, with discoveries you've uncovered so far. Yeah, I think it's definitely interesting. I think with Google I.O. and then Apple's WWDC conference, I think both mentioned AR and VR and machine learning. Um, and I think that's a huge indicator of kind of where this stuff is going, that it's more prominent in at least both these platforms. I'd be curious, like what we can do versus what is kind of makes more sense for a company like Google or Apple or someone with just a ton of money and engineering power to do in terms of machine learning, just because they have more data. So like as a small consulting firm, obviously, like we're not going to be able to produce the same image recognition software that Google can because we don't have, you know, all of that data. So what is the kind of stuff that we can do on our end? Is it just utilize that data or are there other types of machine learning that we can actually build on our side? I, th I think it really depends on like, the type of problem you're trying to solve but there's like a, a huge problem like what is this a picture of is definitely better tackled by google or someone like that because it involves so many data points so like if you think of a, a dog a picture of a dog as being like a series of reds and greens and blues overlaid that's just so much information mm -hmm. um but if you think about a simpler problem so a, a problem i recently did for machine learning is like recognizing motions that people make in VR. So like if someone draws a circle with their hand, maybe three to five times, and then later during the game, they draw a circle again, we can say, oh, you just did a circle. Let me like create a portal or something like that. And with that, you can kind of reduce that down to like a few data points, right? You can say like they made this path that was made up of like maybe 30 to 40 data points with like X, Y, and Z coordinates. And so, you know, you multiply 30 times three and you get like 90 roughly data points to get that information. And that's still a really like cool, magical thing that you can do with machine learning that it would be really difficult to code out if you were just to try and like write that algorithm by hand and say like, this is what makes these two shapes the same. You're going to have to do some weird like have a massive store of like XML information or something like that to say like, this is what a circle looks like. And then you have to handle things like if they draw circles at the same scale or a different scale or in a different plane, but a neural net can handle that really, really easily. And so like, I think the difficult part is finding the problem mm -hmm. where you have a set of inputs that look similar every time, but not exactly the same to the point where it's like easy to write an algorithm for it. Gotcha. What, since you've been working on this, what are the tools or skills or like, are there particular algorithms that you found were more useful? Like, is it high school physics stuff or is it more math and trigonometry? So there's kind of two different sides to it. Like what I was doing was in 3D motion and actually 3D motion is similar in the math it requires to like machine learning in general, which is like linear algebra is really the thing that you want because in 3D space, everything is represented as a three piece vector. Mm -hmm. um, that's how we like keep track of all positions. So if I'm trying to do something like figure out how far apart two points are, I'm just going to be like subtracting vectors, which is all linear algebra. Gotcha. And it kind of fits nicely because uh, if you do any kind of like neural network work, that's basically just like a series of matrices mm -hmm. um, and then like some calculus to do 
backpropagation and things like that. But all of those you can kind of like usually get off the shelf. There's like a lot of libraries out there. So you don't really need to know the math, but knowing the math really helps, um, yeah. especially if you want to like tweak the network at all to mm -hmm. make it stronger in certain areas. Yeah. I remember when I was first getting into programming, um, I was surprised at how little math there was, especially yeah. at least in mobile development, because a lot of it's just written communication and it's pattern recognition and it's knowing how to plug and play with different things. And now as like I try to get more advanced in certain areas, especially with like custom UI and like custom drawing, then you start to have to really go back and understand some more maths and more low level kind of concepts. So I was just curious for machine learning if it starts the same way or if it starts more math heavy. Yeah, I think the way I've done it is I've found classes that I do what I think I want to do. Mm -hmm. And I basically like save those off someplace and try and read them. And if I can't read them, I will go and like follow whatever tutorial I can find to write those until I get to the point where I can read what I thought was doing what I wanted to do. And if I can read that, then I'm like, okay, I'm good. Yeah. I'm fine. But a lot of times that does end up with me like Googling like random YouTube videos on like how to, you know, inverse a matrix or yeah. some other random linear algebra thing that I had never heard of before. Um, and you've been doing this in VR. What language are you writing these in using? So I've been writing in Unity, so I'm using C Sharp. Got it. Are there other libraries or languages that you've used for either neural networks or machine learning? I read a lot of stuff in JavaScript because that had a lot of like good neural network implementations that were super basic and I really liked them. I haven't done a lot of writing there for machine learning stuff because uh, C Sharp is so performant that it's like really nice to be able to write all of your machine learning stuff in there so it can actually like run quickly. Um, I've tried a little bit with the Ruby stuff, but it is like not as much fun, I don't think. You're not as close to the metal and, and doing those math operations are, take longer. You can't do as much complex stuff. Oh, interesting. Yeah. All right, cool. Anyone else have any experience with machine learning or neural networks? Not that I have any particular experience, but if you've seen the latest iOS release, um, iOS 11, and uh, the latest software, they're adding a couple frameworks for machine learning, vision, and augmented reality frameworks, which I'm excited to perhaps play with this Friday. Maybe just get something silly working like taking the camera and identifying objects in the office or, you know, maybe just adding some of the models that some of our other coworkers have made for the Unity games, uh, you know, to a table, like stuff like that. I'm going to maybe mess around with this Friday. So excited about that. But that's kind of those frameworks kind of abstract the machine learning away from you. They're already done. Apple actually provides um, a link to a couple pretty good model training model sets that have already been trained. So you can just use them to recognize random objects around your house. So I'm excited to check out that. Yeah. I think that stuff is really cool. And I think back to um, like Google Glass and some of the hardware that's been out for a few years and how that was probably just a little bit ahead of its time in terms of the rest of the software not being up to date and how much more interesting or valuable or fun something like that would be now with AR being where it is and with everything else kind of having caught up. Because I think at the time it was super kitschy and like I didn't ever personally see the value in it. But now I'm like, that would be really cool or interesting. Pokemon Go, man. I tell you, that, that revolutionized the industry. Yeah. You know, people didn't even know what AR was until Pokemon Go. Yeah, I guess, where do you guys see, what do you think the next big thing in AR is going to be or machine learning? Predictions, guesses. Machine learning is already crazy big and we just don't know it. You know, like the big companies like Google and Facebook use that for everything, I'm sure. Yeah. And they're using it to generate a lot of revenue. Google, especially for their ad business and like all that kind of stuff. They're they're using it heavy handedly. And that's I think that's part of the reason why like it's kind of getting popular now. But people who have been doing this for years are like, what's going on? Like we've been doing this for years, you know, 
it's just math that all of a sudden has a fancy buzzword and everyone's getting excited about, which is good because like that means people will get excited about it, more people will be into it, it will grow, it will get better. But it is something I think people are using everywhere already. AR and VR, I think, are also things that have existed for a while, but are the technology and the hardware, especially the small hardware like the phones, are getting a lot better. We can do those. Like more people have access to hardware that can do those things. And so that I think will be interesting. Yeah, I wanted to mention two things. Um, one, I would be remiss like not to mention uh, Python for people who are just getting started with machine learning. I know personally, like what I was trying to do was in C sharp, so I was trying to write C sharp. But a lot of what I was doing, uh, or well, what I was following, was um, Python tutorials because Python has an immensely powerful set of math libraries, and they make things very easy and take away like a lot of the stress that you will feel as like someone who maybe didn't take like linear algebra in college, like myself. And also to, to mention like what Tony was saying, when I started getting into neural nets, I, I really wanted to figure out like what is the history of this thing and like when did it start? And like neural nets are basically all made up of perceptrons. And that idea has been around since like the 50s, which is amazing. Like back in the 50s, people were like, we can probably model a neuron um, just by like saying that this thing has like an activation potential. And once it goes over its threshold, it emits a signal because that's basically how neurons work if you abstract it out really, really high. And it was just a matter of like having the computing power to hook enough of those together to do anything interesting. And that is what's like just come up in the past like 10 to 15 years. But it is really cool to see that all these things have been around for so long theoretically. And now we finally have the power to like apply them to weird random problems. Like, can I play a duet with an AI composer on the other side and like actually have interesting things come out, which is really cool. Yeah, I think for me, on the user side of things, it's always been the context uh, issue in like talking or dealing with computers. And that like, for so long, it was very like, I give an input, they give an output, they being the computer, and being able to actually have more fluid, like human conversations and remember context. So from like the Siri or Alexa side of things, you know, what's the weather like today? They respond and then being able to ask a follow up question and like not having to repeat the original question, like that kind of stuff has always been what's missing for me. And so I think that's starting to come in and get a lot, lot better and is kind of, it's been really impressive. Um, I think at least in the, uh, I use Siri in my, at my house and it's just, she's getting a lot smarter, <laughs> a lot more useful. Would you say she's a machine that's learning? <laughs> I would. It is also, um, I have both an Android and an iOS phone and I've, I think both companies make updates to the keyboard a lot and that's a huge like machine learning opportunity in terms of like autocomplete and I find that a lot of times there'll be a month where my Android phone is just infinitely better at predicting like what I'm trying to say and then there are times where my iPhone is also a lot better and I use them pretty equally um, and so I think that's the kind of stuff too where like you don't even think about it anymore but like autocomplete's a crazy concept right like it knows contextually based on what you're saying or asking what you are probably typing, even if it's a word that only you use with your friends or like, ha ha with enough ha ha's, things like that is like, to me, very impressive. I have a friend who's quite bad at typing, Mm. uh, texting. And so now his autocomplete is all wrong words, all incorrectly spelled (laughs) words. And so he now sends more incorrectly spelled texts because it's autocompleting to those Yep. from the correct ones. Yeah. And it's hilarious. I can barely read his text messages to me. To me. So it's hilarious, yeah. 
I had a friend once who um, you can have like keyboard shortcuts. So like if you type, you know, GR, it'll auto complete to great. Um, and he used this for uh, dating apps and he had like a few pickup lines that were like he had just set up. So it'd be like, you know, A1 and then it would auto complete to this like whole paragraph of like, hey, it's so nice to meet you. My name is blah, blah. And that was one of the better uses, I think, of keyboard shortcuts that I'd heard of. I feel like if you're sending out enough of those that you <laughs> yeah. really need to shorten it, then like you You're, might want to swipe left a little bit more. Yeah, definitely. You might be casting too wide a net. Yep. I think it's one of those things as a story, you're like, that's amazing. And then it's like the reality, you're like, ooh, should we help you? <laughs> but yeah. I have, Sorry, I kind of feel like the conversation rolls ahead and then I kind of ruminate on what I'm thinking about. But like talking about the future of AR and of VR, um, the thing that I like am really curious to see um, like VR is fine. It's, you know, it's a reproducible experience anywhere, which is interesting or anywhere where there's a Vive headset laying around, mm -hmm. but AR is something that you carry with you. Right. And so if I'm walking down the street with someone else, we are in potentially a shared space beyond just the like streetscape that we are sharing. We are also maybe in like a same augmented reality space. Maybe there are things that are location dependent. And I think there's going to be a really interesting time in the next 10 to 20 years where people start gaining kind of layers of reality that are above what you would normally see, but are actually linked to location. So like maybe for instance, you'll see uh, that there's a faster way to walk to work and somebody else won't see that. And you'll get to see it because like, I don't know, you pay a subscription service that gives you better pedestrian traffic information overlaid on the real world. But it is a really interesting problem, I think, about who gets access to that information. Are there like layers in real estate? Is there like a new real estate market that's going to open up where it's like, this is a channel of augmented reality that everyone is listening to if you pay this much money. And like, you can get access to those people in this location. Basically, like, you know, maybe we'll never have billboards anymore. Maybe we'll just have blank surfaces that like project onto them, whatever like ad is targeted to you. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of like interesting space for ethics and like problems there which i think is going to be really interesting to follow yeah. or maybe to like help influence in the next like decade or two i think immediately of um wally when you were describing that of like everyone being yeah. in their own pod and like having their own <laughs> advertisements and like their own things targeted towards them as like the blobs yeah i think that's the worst direction that we could probably <laughs> go <laughs> Um, yeah, but I think the more socioeconomic and ethics side, as you mentioned, is kind of going to be the weird part. I think San Francisco, especially, you know, if you could have glasses that made it look like there weren't homeless people anymore and like or yeah. made it look like Bart wasn't disgusting, um, but only certain people kind of got to see that. And then how that sold. <laughs> Uh, but then how that influences like political policy, because if half the people don't see this, literally don't see a problem, it'll be a lot harder to, I mean, voting is already kind of crazy and getting everyone to agree. But then if half the world is experiencing something different. Yeah. And, and there's really serious information that could be distributed to people that, that you could be withheld from other people. And it's a real, real minefield. And I think it's important that we use the lessons that we've learned from building the Internet and from starting to build the Internet of Things, um, that we like don't repeat some of those same mistakes this time around. Not to get all political now, but I do feel like we already have these issues with the Internet. I mean, if you think visual information is just another source of information, and we're talking about you know articles and news and all that stuff we find online, and I'm not sure the AR world will be any better um, because people are still going to be people, and they're going to have confirmation biases, and they're going to be have motives that are going to want them to not show certain people some things and that whole spiel. 
Yeah, there was a, I think it was a TechCrunch article today talking about Chariot, which is a private bus company here. I think they're only in San Francisco. They might be in Austin and some other places as well. I'm guessing the, you know, popular tech cities. But the point of it is, though, is that in San Francisco, where public transportation in the city is pretty bad, especially in just a ton of areas, they just don't have really any service at all. And so Chariot is a solution. The problem is that it requires a smartphone to use. And so that's the barrier to entry to these the price is not that much different than the public bus. I think it's a few cents, maybe a dollar off. So it's not the cost of the actual riding. It's the cost of having a smartphone to be able to access these services. And so I think, you know, tagging what you were saying, Tony, that's the factor that's already there. Didn't Lyft just add a bus? Lyft shuttle, I think. Yeah. I think same idea, though. Yeah, this is a conversation I've had with a few people in the past couple months where we talk so much about technology and the power of technology and do-gooders in the NGO world and in the education world hear that rhetoric and they're like, oh, there's so much we can do. There's so much good change we can make in the world. And I'm not going to say that that's not true, but I do think that what people hear when they hear about how powerful computers are and how powerful phones are is they hear, you can improve everyone's life or you can make everyone's life better. And the truth is like, you can maybe make life a little bit better for like a certain subgroup of people who are like already doing pretty damn well. Like, so that's the kind of tension there is like, there's so much change that can only be targeted at people who are like at a certain status. And I know myself and like a few other people who are like really kind of like racking our brains about like, well, what else can we do? Like, how do you reach the people who aren't there? Because theoretically we have a lot of power, but it's hard to like get your change out sometimes. Yeah. I definitely agree with that opinion. And I think to add to that, that um, I think that's kind of, I don't know if catch 22 is the right word for this, but the more popular something gets and the more advanced the high end of things get, the cheaper and the more portable the low end gets as well. And that's where you'll start to see improvements in the people's lives that probably need it the most. And so, yes, I totally get that. It's just kind of silly that we're like solving non-existent problems, especially in where we all live in Silicon Valley. And a lot of that is fluff. So don't, I'm not saying that everything is awesome, but I do think that a lot of this kind of stuff is good, even if it's not immediately good for the people who need it, because it will trickle down eventually. And sometimes that good and that thing that's happening for the people who can afford it and be a part of it now will give it the funding and the, and the leadership and the momentum it needs to go down to the people who really need it. I think uh, one of the most interesting uh, tweets I've seen recently that I never even thought about before is someone, I don't remember who it was, was tweeting about how all the like what we consider like silly, like as seen on TV products, like all those products, or at least a lot of them, are actually products that are meant for people with certain types of disabilities to help them out. But the problem is that because that's such a small subgroup of people, typically, there's not enough uh, money in that group. So you won't get funding. You won't have enough people buying your product to make a living. So what they do is these, uh, these as seen on TV, like products will get funding as like this weird, like kit niche thing that like people might want. And yeah, the commercials are all kind of silly. And like the one I think, think of is like a uh, Snuggie, right? But like, that's actually like a really good blanket for people in wheelchairs, you know? And so like, there's these kinds of things that that's kind of like that idea I was just talking about kind of taken into a very specific focus that like, these products that are meant for people who um, to help improve lives, they need to be kind of cast out a broader net, as we were talking earlier, in a different sense, um, to people so that the funding and the money is there so that people who actually need these things can use them and they can become cheaper for those people because now it's like you have the quantities, you know, to do that. Yeah. 
Other examples, I guess, switching to kind of a positive note of software or technology that you guys have seen out in the wild recently that made you think that's a really good use of someone's skills, time, money, that kind of made you think, hat tip to you? Yeah. So in I was in Japan last year and after Fukushima, there is like still a lot of radiation kind of in that area. And from like just in general in the Japanese countryside, there's like this kind of sense of like we're not exactly sure where the worst areas are in terms of radiation exposure. And so there's a group and I'm blanking on their name right now, but they have basically put together a like very cheap Geiger counter and cheap for Geiger counters is still like two to four hundred dollars or something like that because there's like one very expensive sensor you need to have an accurate Geiger counter but they've worked with a bunch of buildings in different municipalities and actually like people who are like biking around to put these sensors either like on their bags or like permanently on buildings and those all relay information back to their main server which just gives you a map of Japan with all of the radiation levels from all these different places. Um, So you can look on it and see like exactly where is the worst, like what the seasonal trends are for a place. Um, You can get a ton of information that's like very important for people making decisions about like where to go on vacation. And all of the people who did that were like as far as I know, like pretty much unpaid. Um, I know the person who I was talking to the most is like an open source contributor who just like was looking for a Rails project to jump on and like spent a ton of time just like squashing issues for these people. But it's like, I think things like that, connecting kind of the web framework that we already can make very easily to like powerful sensors in the real world does give you like some really great opportunities to let people know about like global trends or about seasonal trends of things that they like otherwise couldn't get that information on. Yeah, it's always interesting to me, like what can be done that requires other hardware or other data versus like what can be done with like what we have now. Um, I have, uh, I was just at my college reunion and two of my friends from college started a, um, it's a women's health app and it's entirely focused at educating women on birth control, which is a topic that's really It's a weird one um, because it's not like other medicines where you go and you say, I have these symptoms, and then the doctor's like, okay, I can fix them with these drugs um, because it's entirely hormonal based. And so, again, it's not like a blood type where if you're a positive, then we can give you whatever the opposite or complementary blood type is. They're changing, and so the doctor is honestly making their best guess, um, and that's not because... There's just you can't match hormone. There's no way to like take a test and be like, oh, this is my hormone levels. These are my hormone balances. And so it's an area where a lot of doctors, the best way to do it is trial and error. And that means that women are taking pills every single day that could be totally wrong for them and their hormones. And it's no one's fault, but it's a thing that takes a really long time. And education on it is just not out there, mostly because women are embarrassed or you know there isn't a totally 100% accurate science to it. And so they're using just. I mean, I think aggregated data and creating a channel and a space for women to just ask all their kind of embarrassing questions. I think the analogy they told me was like, instead of you know opening an incognito browser in Chrome and typing in a question, just like being able to ask the service where you can like pretty accurately get back a response that is at least scientifically accurate um, and relevant to you specifically, not just like going on WebMD and being like, I'm pretty sure I have lupus. <laughs> that sounds awesome. I, there's also one other one that I was thinking of like a friend of mine is involved with this in New York City. There's uh, a lot of like apartments in Brooklyn that uh, I believe two winters ago were basically filled with people who had like rent controlled apartments, totally under market rate, and their landlords would basically just like shut off their heat. And it was like, well, yeah, you know, I can't technically evict you, but I can make sure that this place is like pretty unlivable. And the only way that you can prove that they're doing that is to call someone and say, 
you know, you need to come down here and inspect that my heat isn't working. And in order to do that, they have to inform the landlord that they are going to go check if their heat is working so they will turn the heat back on. So by the time anyone gets there to do anything about it, you can't prove it. And it works really well. And there's a New York City company called HeatSeek that figured out that, as Tony was saying, computing power has gotten like a lot cheaper. And now you can buy like a small Linux computer for $5 with a Wi-Fi sensor built in. And they basically put together a bunch of like Wi-Fi equipped mobile thermometers that just report directly to HeatSeek uh, all like every five minutes or something like that. And they give these out to people who are experiencing this. And when it comes time to have a court date, the person can actually bring in like, well, here's like an untampered with record of the temperature in my apartment with like location data for the for the device and like the temperatures it was experiencing. And like, you know, this is actually what, what the temperature was. The average of this month was, you know, 40 degrees or yeah. something like that. That's awesome. Also very sad because it's very cold in New York. <laughs> now, Greg is the father of a newborn. Are there things that you feel strongly about teaching your daughter or things that you like being an engineer, especially in modern times and being in San Francisco, like, is she only going to eat organic food? Is she going to have screen time? I feel like she'll probably inherit some of the methodologies I subscribe to, um, being vegan and sort of like pro small business, pro farmers markets. Um, so we've been taking her to those. But on the technology side, I'm sort of putting the brakes on that. I mean, she's still pretty little, but uh, she is already being curious about the, all the screens that uh, me and her mom are looking at, whether that's a laptop, uh, you know, she always sees it on our phone. And you could see that uh, when there's a screen around, she'll, she'll try to peek at it. Um, so we're, we're definitely trying to be a little cautious about that and not sort of display that behavior in front of her. Because as she grows up, she'll definitely be in that uh, digital generation of screens everywhere, AR, <laughs> VR, all these things we've talked about. So trying to give her like some of this device-free childhood as much as we can, whether that's to save on her, on her eyes or maybe break some of that behavior of constantly looking at the screen and sort of interact with you know friends, family, et cetera. Yeah. I took a class in college called, um, I think it was Media and Communication, and um, they talked a little bit about children and how they learn about media and screens and things like that. And there's actually an age where, I think it's up till three, where children actually think that the characters on TV are in the room with them. And that's why a lot of young shows, uh, the characters are talking directly to the kids because the kids think it's real and that it's directly to them and that kids will actually walk behind the TV um, and try and see where their friends went when the TV goes off because they don't understand. And that's why Peekaboo is an effective game because they literally, at that age, when they can't see you, they think you're gone. And like it's a human, it's like a skill that you have to learn that like, nope, still there, <laughs> just hiding behind my hands. But that's why um, also like when, like especially with young kids and like babysitters, when the parents like go out to dinner, the kids think they're never coming back because they, again, they can't see you. You're not in their room with them. And so it's this like massive panic, which is really real to them because they don't understand this like going out to dinner, coming home as like a concept, which I always thought was super fascinating. And then my last little fun fact about kids and TVs is eyes and that uh, kids first see eyes in other people, um, which is why all Disney characters and all animated characters have massively disproportionate eyes, because that's what kids look at in, fa in terms of like trying to understand emotions and facial recognition. And that's why like no matter how much better the technology gets at like making things in animated movies look real, the eyes will always be just stupidly big compared to the, like the rest of the proportions of a face. 
Yeah, on the topic of eyes, I heard this thing. I don't know how true it is, but I heard that with kids, you want to maintain eye contact and not break it to sort of encourage and help them develop that maintaining contact skill. And that that is something that resonates with me. And I don't know if it's a cultural thing or maybe when I was little, my parents didn't look at me in the eyes or maybe that ties back into into being a cultural thing where like, you know, in late Soviet Union, there wasn't a lot of eye contact between people. So like I'm conscious about like maintaining eye contact, but it's not it's not a natural thing for me. So I've been experimenting that with my daughter and she she loves to maintain eye contact. And I definitely am trying to encourage that with her just so she gets used to to it and hopefully it doesn't end up like me <laughs> like a, ch- a staring competition <laughs> champion <laughs> all right cool show notes can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 116 follow us on twitter at underscore bikeshed and leave us feedback at hosts at bikeshed.fm or leave a comment on the website thank you so much <laughs> <laughs>